Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take this as your cue to get up, grab one off the welcome table if that's you. You can you got still a moment here. Um, follow along with us in God's Word. But this morning we are continuing, continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. And I've titled today's message, uh, Brought Near and United Together. I almost did another two-word sort of thing, like the last two weeks, but then I decided against it. But Brought Near and United Together, uh, we're going to start reading in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 10 to get just the, the flow, the context of what Paul's been writing about here to the believers in Ephesus. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writing, he says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together, verse 6, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We saw in the first half of chapter 2 that we were dead. So we just read. Doesn't get any more clear than that. You're dead. Trespasses and sins, separated from God by our sin. But then saw how God dealt with that deadness, that separation that existed before Christ saved us, making us alive together with Jesus Christ. By grace, you and I have been saved. There's no other way. Paul made it very clear it's not of works of any kind of us. Because if it was, then we'd have some room for boasting. He's like, it. It's not where it's at. That's not how it's going to happen. God won't allow it. It's going to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we're saved. But now we're going to see how we were separated from one another. So we weren't just separated from God. We were separated from each other. And, and we're going to see how Jesus did away with the things that were separating us made us one, united together in him, a new humanity, a new society, his body, the church. I want to show you a quote, and uh, I've been doing this recently, an introduction. Uh, John Stott wrote this. 
He said, although all human beings are alienated from God because of sin, the Gentiles were also alienated from the people of God. And worse even than this double alienation, of which the temple wall was a symbol, was the active enmity or hostility into which it continuously erupted. Enmity between man and God and enmity between Gentiles and Jews. The grand theme of Ephesians 2 is that Jesus Christ has destroyed both enmities. Both are mentioned in the second half of the chapter. He said, alongside his destruction of these two enmities, Jesus has has succeeded in creating a new society, in fact, a new humanity in which alienation is given way to reconciliation and hostility to peace. And this new human unity in Christ is the pledge and foretaste of that final unity under Christ's headship to which Paul has already looked forward in chapter 1, verse 10. And so with that context and introduction in mind, let's read verses 11 and 12 of our text this morning. Ephesians 2, verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that you... Once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul moves from speaking into the general spiritual state of all sinners, all of humanity, all who have been made alive in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, to speaking specifically into the former spiritual state of the Gentiles, the non-Jews in the church in Ephesus, which paints a clear picture of all Gentiles who don't have Jesus' salvation. It's the same thing as what Paul did earlier in this chapter. He wasn't saying, you... But that's just really just you guys. You were dead in sin sin and trespasses because you were the worst. Everybody else outside of Ephesus, they're doing just fine. They're all alive. He's like, no, this is, we're, we're painting a picture of what all of humanity really has going on spiritually. Without Christ, because each of us are born in sin, born with sin, There's deadness, there's separation, and all these other things you were following after, you were a slave to, but God, and not just but God, but by his grace, look what he's done. Look what you brought to the table. Look what I brought to the table, but look what Jesus has brought to the table through his death on the cross. Salvation by grace. We considered that over the last two weeks. But here we see that a distinction and division had existed between Gentiles, those who are called uncircumcision, all non-Jews. That's a really easy way to lump society, right? Like all of the world. Because we think about all the tribes, all the different cultures, all the different nations, We would have like a whole Bible's worth of being able to go, and you, and you, and you, 
and you and you and you. And, 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 and defining who all these people were and the Jews. You were all separated. But in the world at that time, it was Jews and Gentiles. You were either a Jew or a Gentile. The, the Jewish people called the Gentiles the uncircumcision. They called themselves the circumcision. That's what the Jewish people did. The, uh, the nation of Israel, those who had the covenants and promises. The distinction and division had a few different components to it. It was physical. Again, one group was circumcised, the other was not. The distinction and division was also spiritual. One group had the covenants of promise, and the other were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And the distinction and division was also national or racial, a separation existing with hostility or, or animosity really going both ways. But Paul's therefore at the beginning of verse 11 is him following up on a previous thought. And here we find that he's directing his attention to the Gentiles in the church of Ephesus after talking about the spiritual condition that they had once been in and now what their spiritual state was because of Jesus' free gift of salvation in the preceding verses of chapter 2. They were a part of everything he's already said. Saying, hey, you Gentiles specifically, remember those things that kept you separated from God and from your Jewish brethren in the church, but, but also be confident of what Jesus has done in you and for you by his blood, his sacrifice on the cross. I mean, think about it from the Gentile perspective. They're a part of this church in Ephesus. They have other believers in the church who they're ex already experiencing this oneness, this, this unity that the Spirit of God has provided, but they're looking out still. Yes, they have their gathering of believers. They have their time together. They have their brethren in the Lord, but then they're looking out on humanity and they're still seeing this divide, this divide existing. They're looking out maybe and seeing Gentiles that, are, that have hate towards the, the Jews and they're looking out at the Jews and they're seeing how they have hate towards the Gentiles and then they're looking at each other and going, what's happened? What's changed? Why is what we have here now different than what we're seeing in the marketplace? What we're seeing in our communities? And, and maybe for us in the, in the church, us as, as believers, we, we see the same thing, and it maybe doesn't always initially hit us what that difference is because we're looking out in our world and we're seeing chaos and we're seeing division and we're seeing separation and we're seeing animosity between uh, cultural groups and, and ethnic groups and, and because of language barriers or, or the color, the pigmentation of someone's skin, and they're looking out and they're going, man, look at all that's existing here but why is what we have here so much different? What makes what we have in the church so much different 
And I say all that, and at the same time, we can look back through history, even in our country, and see that the church has been just as guilty at times of doing exactly what the world has done for millennia, right? Segregation within the church. And it's not even just racial, it's political too, isn't it? It's, it's not just political, it's like educational. Oh, we're the people with, we've got, we're really intellectual, we've got the degrees, we're all about that sort of thing. We're not like those other people. And isn't it interesting that non or I say non-educated, but people that haven't pursued education in the same way can look at the educated people, the people with degrees in the same way. Look at me, look what I've accomplished with my life, and I didn't have to go and get my, bach my, my bachelor's degree or my master's degree or my doctorate. I'm doing even better than some other people that I know that have gotten that. And there can be animosity in that way. There's no end to it. Why? Because... It's us. We're sinful. And we always want to take what we have and use it. It can be a gift from the Lord and we'll take it and we'll use it to elevate ourselves above somebody else and go, look what I have that you don't. And it's seen in a myriad of ways. And how cool would it be to, to get this letter and go, oh my gosh, this is why what we have in the church is so different. This is why it's supposed to be so different. It's because of Jesus. The same grace of God that saved us has transformed how we can view and interact with one another in the body of Christ. It's transformed how we can look out on the world outside of the church, the lost, and have love, have compassion for people instead of disdain. And man, do we need God to transform the way that we see one another? We need it. And maybe for us, we can look at some of this and go, yeah, I remember I remember how I used to view people. I remember how I used to view people that viewed me different. Because you had a problem with me, now I have a problem with you. And these Gentile believers were in the same place. They're going, yeah, Paul, we, we do remember. We remember? We were the uncircumcision. That was a put down. That was a derogatory term. And over here we have the Jews. They're the circumcision. They're sort of the, the spiritual elite of society. But check out what Warren Wearsby said on verse 11. He wrote, Most of the converts in the Ephesian church were Gentiles. And they knew that much of God's program in the Old Testament involved the Jews. For centuries, the circumcision, the Jews, had looked down on the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, with an attitude that God had never intended them to display. The fact that a Jew had received the physical mark of the covenant was no proof he was a man of faith. And he lists a few passages there, Romans 2, Galatians 5, Galatians 6. Those who have trusted Christ have received a spiritual circumcision made without hands. 
Paul speaks into this in Colossians 2.11. But since the hour that God called Abraham, God made a difference between Jews and Gentiles. He made this difference. Not that the Jews might boast, but that they might be a blessing and a help to the Gentiles. God set them apart that he might use them to be a channel of his revelation and goodness to the heathen nations. Sad to say, Israel kept this difference nationally and ritually, but not morally. Israel became lost like the nations around her. For this reason, God often had to discipline the Jews because they would not maintain their spiritual separation and minister to the nations in the name of the true God. And as we see in verse 12, these Gentile believers Paul is writing to, before they were saved by grace through faith in Jesus, they had been without Christ. Why? Because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So from a Gentile perspective, for many of them, they probably had little to no interest in the Jewish Messiah, in Jesus And not only had they been without Christ, they had been aliens, literally alienated, estranged, considered foreign from the commonwealth, the citizenry, the people of Israel. And they had been strangers, unacquainted, not knowledgeable about the covenants of promise that God had made to the Jewish people. And because they didn't have God's law, or God's covenant promises, and with that didn't have a messianic promise, they had no hope. What what confident expectation did they have as a people group? And Paul follows that up by saying that they were without God. They were godless in the world, which is interesting because if we remember Paul's time in the city of Ephesus, What was one of the main things that we realized and saw very clearly about the people of Ephesus? They had a god, the goddess Diana, right? That they were so about that the idol makers of Diana got so angry, they stirred up this mob, they filled the whole Colosseum, tried to kill Paul. So when Paul's saying, you are godless in this world, he's not saying, You never worshipped a God. You never had your own God. He's saying, the God you had wasn't a God. And just the spiritual sort of insight that Paul is really giving through that phrase, that we would look at what's going on in our world and see that people are worshipping things that are not God's. There's a, a psalm, and I, it fails me what psalm at the, the chapter number now. But basically, the, the psalmist describes idolatry, the idols of the people, by saying, look, they have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They can't do anything for you. And, and just the reality of what we make that we end up worshiping, our worship of it doesn't automatically now change it into a real thing. It just means that we're worshiping the wrong thing. 
And Paul's going, look, you guys had no God. You thought you did. You had your temple. You had your whole worship system there in Ephesus after Diana. But you were actually godless. This was who they once were. Paul wasn't telling them anything new. But now, because of Jesus and in Jesus, all that had changed for them. And all that divide, all that separation between Gentiles and Jews had changed as well as we're going to see in verses 13 through 18. But, but first, verse 13, Paul goes on to say, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, all those things used to be true of these Gentile believers in Ephesus, true of every non-Jew. But now, I just love that. I love that Paul just, cont- Paul just continues this on. He goes, but God, that's who you were. You were dead. You were a slave. You were a child of wrath. You were under the condemnation of God. But God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he saved us. He met us. He made us alive. By grace, by grace you've been saved. And now he's going, look, another moment here. You Gentiles, remember who you were. You were without hope. You were without Christ. You were without a God. You were without the law. You were without the promises. But now, but now look what Jesus has done. And how easy you and I can get stuck in the past, can't we? We can look back at who we were, and we can get stuck there. And we can say, but God, but God. We're reading about him saving us by grace, and we're like, but God, remember, I was stunk. And I did all this stuff. And he has a different but God in mind than us. And we're looking back, and that thing from the past is actually keeping us from just embracing what God has done now. And it's almost like he's going, if that but God or if that by grace wasn't enough for you, let's do one more but. But now. But now in Christ Jesus. Guys, God has done something. Radical. It's so radical that everything about you and me, everything about our identity, everything about our purpose in life has been radically transformed because of Jesus Christ and Him alone. We didn't do it, we didn't make the transformation happen. Jesus did by His grace. But now in Christ Jesus. And that's the operative word there. Because it all hinges on that spiritual position. 
of being in Christ. That's the turning point for everything changing in us and with us. These people who were once far off, uh, and, and that word far speaking of a long way, far, far away in a galaxy, far, far, no. The scrolling. You're like, what are you talking about, Jared? Never mind. If you're not tracking with me, it's all good. Far off. Couldn't have been farther. Have been brought near. Have been brought into a state of closeness by the blood of Christ. Again, this just reminds us, we didn't do it. We didn't make that happen. We didn't bring about that change. Jesus did it. And how did he do it? He did it through his sacrificial, atoning death upon the cross. His blood being shed for you and me. That's what's brought us near. What it took to bring you and me near is for him to experience temporary separation from the Father. He cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could cry out, God, thank you for embracing me. Thank you for bringing me near. The separation from God could not have been further. But now in Christ Jesus and by the blood of Jesus, we who once were far off have been brought near. Hallelujah. We praise Jesus for what he's done. But let's continue on. Read verses 14 through 16 with me. Paul says, For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Paul was just referencing Jesus, saying, in Christ Jesus, and the, the blood of Christ. And now he describes Jesus, not just as Christ, Messiah, the anointed one of God, but as our peace, that he, Jesus himself, is our peace. And just... Something cool that I found here, and if you're in our daily Bible readings with us, just yesterday in Micah chapter 5, in that famous passage where uh, Micah is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, the, the one who would be ruler, from, the one who is from ancient of days. In, in verse 5 of the, that chapter, when describing the Messiah, Jesus, who would be born, he, he says that this one shall 
be peace. Not that this one shall bring peace, although he has. This one shall be peace. And this is important for us to grab a hold of because, and I've said this probably many times over the years, that peace isn't just something Jesus gives, it is who he is. And we're thankful that it is something he gives, right? We look at Philippians chapter 4 and we see that passage about, you know, don't be anxious for anything, but you know, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That we're to meditate on what's true and noble and just and, and, and praiseworthy and of good report. The God of peace will be with us. And we, we think about that and we go, okay, if, if this, then that. If I can do this, then God, you're gonna give me your peace. And then sometimes we're just, we're approaching God just go, Lord, just give it to me. Give me that thing that you have sort of in your back pocket. And he's going, it's me. It's me. What you need is me. Peace isn't just something I give. It's who I am. And that's That's huge. Because if we're lacking in peace, we're not, like, God isn't withholding something from us where he's going, I just don't think you deserve my peace. What often we need is just, Jesus, I need, I need you. I just need you, Jesus. I need you to have your way in my situation that, that your peace would overflow. It's in receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior that we make peace with God. And clearly in us making peace with God and having Jesus who is himself our peace now living inside of us by his spirit, this being true for both Jews and Gentiles in Christ, the division, the lack of peace that existed between Jews and Gentiles is now radically altered. Where we now have peace with each other in such a way that Paul says that Jesus has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. See, that wall of division that used to keep Jews and Gentiles apart, Jesus has broken down. He's destroyed it. He's done away with it. By the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice upon the cross, the salvation he's provided for us by his grace, he has undone the thing that was keeping us separated from each other. To where Jewish believers in Jesus and, and Gentile believers in Jesus are no longer seen as two separate and distinct groups, but now seen as one people in the eyes of the Father, because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus has broken down that middle wall of separation. He's abolished the enmity. That is the hostility that came about because of the law of commandments contained in ordinances, and he has put to death the enmity. 
I like what Willie McDonald said about verse 15. He said, Paul identifies the law as the innocent cause of the enmity. That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The law of Moses was a single legislative code, yet it was made up of separate formal commandments. These, in turn, consisted of dogmas or decrees covering many, if not most, areas of life. The law itself was holy, just, and good, Romans 7, 12. But man's sinful nature used the law as an occasion for hatred. Because the law actually did set up Israel as God's chosen earthly people, many Jews became arrogant and treated the Gentiles with contempt. The Gentiles struck back with deep hostility, which we have come to know all too well as anti-Semitism. But how did Christ remove the law as the cause of enmity? First, he died to pay the penalty of the law that had been broken. He thus completely satisfied the righteous claims of God. Now the law has nothing more to say to those who are in Christ. The penalty has been paid for them in full. Believers are not under law, but under grace. However, this does not mean they can live as they please. It means they are now enlawed to Christ and should live as he pleases. And he went on to say, as a result of abolishing the hostility stirred up by the law, the Lord has been able to usher in a new creation. He has made in himself from the two, that is from believing Jew and believing Gentile, one new man, the church. Through union with him, the former combatants are united with one another in this new fellowship. The church is new in the sense that it is a kind of organism that never existed before. It's important to see this. The New Testament church is not a continuation of the Israel of the Old Testament. It is something entirely distinct from anything that has preceded it or that will ever follow it. The church is clearly a new creation with a distinct calling and a distinct destiny occupying a unique place in the purposes of God. But the scope of Christ's work does not stop there. He has also made peace between Jew and Gentile. He did this by removing the cause of hostility, by imparting a new nature, and by creating a new union. The cross is God's answer to racial discrimination, segregation, anti-Semitism, bigotry, and every form of strife between men. That's powerful. That, that's encouraging. It's also sobering all at the same time, and it's a needed word for us today with all the division, all the hostility, all the hatred, all the prejudices that we see throughout our world, and also, even now that we're seeing, with an even greater rise of anti-Semitism. You know, someone could read this and go, man, the, the Jews were pretty bad. Look at how they treated the Gentiles, calling them uncircumcision. No, we have the covenants and promises. We have the Messiah. That's not Paul's point here. That's not where Paul's going here with all of this. He's going, look, like there were things that divided us. And, and the truth, the reality of it is, is that God chose the Jewish people. They're still his people. He still has a plan for them. 
Everything centers around the nation of Israel. Everything in the prophetic end time scene. Uh, I read a, a, a blog uh, post by Pastor Tim Brown from Calvary Fremont recently. He uh, sent on this thing, this uh, email server that I'm a part of. But he was saying like, it, you know, basically the, the whole premise was, is America in the end time sort of picture? And then he picked a verse. It doesn't say anything about America in it. But what it did say was, Basically, the gist of it was all of the world is going to be against Israel. And so he goes, yes, America is in end times prophecy in that sense because every single nation is going to turn against the Jewish people. Eventually, ultimately, and we see it trending in that direction more and more in our day. But listen, the cross of Jesus is still God's answer to every form of strife between men. You know, not only did Jesus do away with the enmity, the hostility that kept Gentiles and Jews separated from, from each other, Jesus did away with, even going as far as saying that he put it to death, the enmity, the hostility that kept all of us separated from God as he reconciled us both to God in one body through what he accomplished on the cross. And by doing all that, as we see in verses 14 through 16, he has made both Gentiles and Jews one, created in himself one new man, a new humanity from the two, thus making peace, and has reconciled us both to God in one body. And this just sort of helps broaden our understanding of what Jesus achieved through his sacrifice for us on the cross. Because oftentimes, I don't know about you, but when I think about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, I just think about my sins being forgiven. Oh, and, oh, and I'll think about, and Jesus, you ushered into this new covenant, sealed with your blood. But I don't necessarily think about how there was this enmity, this hostility that existed between us and God, that, that our pride, our sin, put us at enmity in, in, a, in a place of opposition to God, and that Jesus' cross has done away with that. He's reconciled us through his blood. Or, especially, I don't necessarily think that, you know what, there was a problem in humanity between Jews and Gentiles, an enmity that existed, a hostility that existed, that Jesus' cross has remedied that too. And the more that we understand this, the more that we can appreciate and thank our God for what he's done for us because it's vast. It's even more vast than you and I could ever really comprehend. And you and I are just scratching the surface of, of getting what it meant for God and human flesh to hang upon a cross in our place. What did that mean for you and me? There are Tons of deep theological terms that describe all the things that Jesus achieved, he accomplished on the cross. And Paul's going, look, you Gentiles, you get something maybe even that the Jews don't necessarily get. Because you were the ones without Christ. You were without the covenants of promise. But look what Jesus has done for you. Look what he's done for you. Not second class Citizens in the kingdom of God. 
but that you and the Jews, all believers in Jesus Christ, every, per, every Jew, every Gentile that's put their faith in Christ, you're both on the same playing field. But let's continue on and read verses 17 and 18. Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So added to all those things we read that Jesus has done, we see in verse 17 that Jesus came, he preached peace to those who were far off, those who were near. That this is what Jesus has done, not just in himself, but him through his people. We're told at least one instance of Jesus specifically preaching peace, and we see that in Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance. What was the first thing that Jesus said to his disciples when he appeared to them in that room that they were in where they had kind of locked themselves in, they were trying to, they, they were afraid of the, the religious leaders. Jesus shows up and he goes, peace to you. Peace to you. But we also see here that Paul is really referencing an Old Testament promise in Isaiah chapter 57 that this even was a fulfillment, that, that something that Jesus fulfilled. God himself said this in Isaiah 57 verse 19. He said, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off, And to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. I will heal him. So not only has the salvation of Jesus healed the separation that existed between us and God, healing, removing the enmity that existed and reconciling us to the Father, Jesus has healed the separation that existed between us and others. The enmity, the hostility that kept us from having peace with one another and has brought all of us who are now in Christ near to himself. And just as we saw in chapter 1, again in verse 18, we see Paul describing the Trinitarian nature of our God. That through Jesus, God the Son, we both have access by one Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to, he says, the Father, God, the Father. So how is a Jewish person given access to God the Father? Through Jesus and through Jesus alone. How is a Gentile person given access to God the Father? Through Jesus and Jesus alone. Check out what Paul wrote in Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. He said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know, the the Jewish mindset understood this access maybe a little bit more than the Gentile mindset. Because you didn't just have access to God. That wasn't a thing. Like, oh, you just come whenever. We look at the way that the temple was set up, we, we see no one really had access to God. 
There's a temple in the most holy place. There's God's presence. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Then there's this veil separating inside the temple, the, the holy place from the most holy place. And only the priests could enter into the temple. And only the high priest, this, this man, a man, so even by gender, a man only, who was a part of the, the line of Aaron, uh, sorry, the, the, the line of Levi through Aaron himself, so it had to be through one person's genealogy, could potentially be the high priest, and even that dude could only enter in one time a year. And when he did, he entered with bells on the bottom of his robe with fear, because if there was any sort of sin in his life that hadn't been atoned for, he would drop dead behind the veil, and they'd have to pull him out by a rope that was attached to his ankle. You and I wouldn't go, look at the access. Everybody else outside the temple never get to go inside the temple. And then even beyond that, the Gentiles would be in the court of the Gentiles in a place beyond where the Jews were at. And Paul's going here, Jesus, because of Jesus, you, Jew and Gentile, now one in Christ, now the body of Christ, you guys have full access to the Father. And we see that symbolized in what happened when Jesus was on the cross. What happened when Jesus hung there? The veil in the temple tore in two from top to bottom. God did that so that we could go, there's nothing keeping us out anymore. God wants us to have that access. He wants us to approach us with confidence. He's given us those promises. And those promises aren't specific to the Jewish people anymore. Therefore, every person, any person who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, that's you and me. We have access by the Spirit of God who lives inside of us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. See, both Gentiles and Jews have the same need. It's Jesus. We both have the same equal access because of and through Jesus. So no group has special, special access that another doesn't have. There are no more separated groups at all because Jesus has destroyed that which separated us and has made us one in himself through the cross, no longer seen as two, but again, one new humanity, a new people, a new society created by Jesus who have our identity and our purpose in Jesus. Praise him that he's done all this. Praise Jesus that we get to experience his peace. Praise him that the, that the, the unity is there now. The enmity has been removed. And he's done all this for you and me. Now the worship team come back up. You know, the, in some ways, this could be a bit of a corrective word for some of us because there can be things in our lives that we've taken a good gift God's given us and we've allowed that thing in our minds to be something that's created enmity between us and someone else. 
where we're going, oh man, and look what I've got that this other person doesn't have. And we can look at somebody else and have some sort of attitude towards somebody. And our attitude could even be because someone else had an attitude. Right? Well, I don't like them because they don't like me. I don't like that political party because they don't like my political party. That maybe for some this morning, the Lord would just say, hey, cut it out. Cut it out. Don't we know? We know now, if you didn't know before, Jesus died to put to death the enmity that existed so that we could experience together the peace of Jesus himself, this new thing that he's created called the church where we're all one in Christ Jesus, all having the same access to the Father because of his Spirit. So where is there room for boasting in that? Where is there room for us to look down on somebody else? There isn't any. But at the same time, for some of us, maybe we need to be reminded of who we were again. We, we needed that reminder a couple weeks ago, early in chapter 2, but we needed again who we once were, but now who we are in Christ Jesus. And to stand confidently in what Jesus has done and what he's provided for you and for me, and maybe even for some of us, just a corrective word about how we view the church. Because if Jesus died to make us one, how dare we ever be a person that divides? I mean, there could be some legitimate things to divide over. I'm not saying that there isn't. When it comes to false teaching or uh, immorality, there can be things for us to divide over. But oftentimes, the things that people divide over are not biblically worthy points of division. That we would strive for unity as the people of God and see each other the way that God does, right? Purchased with his blood. And when we can look at each other and go, wow, Jesus died to make that person his own. And how would our attitude towards others change? How would our desire to minister to one another change? And I say, Lord, do it. Do it. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Father, we thank you. Even as we're just in this Christmas season, we think about the gift of your son. You sent your son into this world. Put him right in the darkness of our world to reach us. To save us. To die for us. And Lord Jesus, to know that you don't look out on humanity and you're going, yeah, the Jews, they're my people. Forget about the Gentiles. You're not looking at the Gentiles and go, ah, forget about the Jews. You're going, those who were far, I've now brought near through the blood of Christ and made one. And Lord, you look out on us and any person, every person who's put their faith in Christ, No matter the color, the class, no matter what tongue or tribe or nation, 
man or woman, slave or free. The Lord, we are one in Christ Jesus. Those who have put their faith in Christ, each one of us has equal access to you. Seen as your children. God, we thank you for that. Jesus, we thank you for what your blood has provided for us, what your sacrifice accomplished for us. But maybe there's somebody today and you're just, you know, you're hearing all this and you're going, that's, that's great, but maybe you needed to be confronted with this reality that with not having Jesus, what that means, that you today, if that's you, are without Christ, you're without the promises, you're without hope, you're without God. And to know this morning that the Lord would say to you, you know what, I don't want you to be in that without category any longer. But the solution, the remedy is Jesus. It's what Jesus has accomplished for you and for me upon the cross of Calvary. He died so that that enmity, that hostility could be broken down, could be abolished, could be put to death that those who are separated from God by their sins can be reconciled, can be redeemed, can be forgiven, can be given Jesus' free gift of salvation. And if that's you this morning, I want to pray for you. You're going, I, I, I need my sins forgiven. I need. I need Jesus' salvation. I don't want to be without Christ. I don't want to be without hope. I don't want to be without God anymore. I don't want to be without the promises. Would you raise your hand if that's you so I can pray for you this morning? You're going, that's me. And Lord Jesus, I want you to do something in my life today. Yeah, I see you. Anybody else? They're going, that's me. I encourage you, you raise your hand just to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm that one without Christ and without hope and without God. But Jesus, I believe you died so that I could live. That Jesus, the cross has brought about my salvation. So Jesus, would you save me? Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Jesus, I repent of my sin. And I put my trust in you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. Jesus, would you make me alive in you today? Would you seal me with your Holy Spirit? And Jesus, would you help me live for you? I encourage you, if you've done that, maybe you're here present and have done that, or maybe watching online that the Bible says you will be saved. I encourage you, if you've made that decision today to get followed up with, the prayer counselors in the corner would love to pray for you. But Lord, we just thank you for your word. Would you help us to walk, Lord, in all that you've provided for us? Jesus, you're so good, so worthy to be praised. Lord, would we take this opportunity now to praise you through these songs, to continue to commune with you, Lord, through the taking of the communion elements. 
Lord, we, we love you. We thank you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.